Hi, I'm Deepak and you're listening to The Meaning Quotient, a place where we celebrate human potential through personal stories, talks and conversations on meaning. Today, we have with us Dr. Dominic Longo. Dominic is a founder of Flourishing Gaze, a leadership development company from LGBTQ+ perspective. A former engagement manager at McKinsey, Dominic has also directed the Center of Muslim Christian Dialogue at University of St. Thomas. An Italian-American from Nebraska, Dominic moved to Cairo in his early 20s for a couple of years with an intent of understanding Arab Muslim world better. Little did he know that these couple of years are going to provide a new meaning to his life. Let's unfurl his story. Welcome to the Meaning Question podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Such a pleasure. So Dominic, if you have to see how have you been shaped from your childhood, what comes to your mind? Well, um shaped from my childhood, I mean, I guess just the sort of geographic and cultural um location is a place to start so you know nebraska in the center of the us uh, is where i'm from and my family has been there for more than a century on both sides um and the city of omaha uh which is a city of about a million people today in the metro area um you know it's sort of uh, suburban america and all kinds of uh predictable ways and within that um being catholic and 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 it's a quite a catholic city so um living in a bit of a a a catholic bubble in some ways uh in that american suburban context um and the other cultural thing to note besides you know really experiencing the world as white and in a pretty white uh world uh, is being italian and italian american mm. um so my dad's family uh emigrated from sicily um the turn of the, the century and that cultural um influence is just very much a part of uh my growing up and my sense of self and how were your parents like to you well um yeah i mean my parents uh divorced when i was 3 um and my mother played a much bigger role in raising my sister and me um than my dad who really was you know having a hard time in the world in in so many ways um although his parents uh on the other hand were a very big part of of helping to raise uh me and my sister um in what way so you about something about your father you want to share um yeah i mean he he uh was a very troubled person and um you know i would say had quite significant mental illness throughout his life uh and so really wasn't able to function in society in any way um from from most of his life so your mother was the really holding everything together yeah i agree to put it yeah 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 that's right 
And when she divorced my dad, um, I mean, she had a high school diploma, a mortgage, you know, and two kids. Um, and so she went back to university, did a business degree, and then a, a law degree, clerked for a federal judge, became, you know, part of a law firm, eventually a partner in the largest law firm in Nebraska. Um, you know, so really through her uh, academic uh, prowess and her grit, uh, made a career for herself, even while raising us. Um, so this was quite a turnaround, I, I would say. And, and so, yeah, I mean, one thing to say from all of that in terms of forming me is that, you know, feminism was never some uh, far off uh, idea. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, that women are strong and capable and, you know, full human beings deserving of all the rights and privileges of men. Well, this was to me just implicit. I mean, I didn't didn't need to, didn't need to be argued to me. And uh, you know, just thinking, uh, like you belong to the LGBTQ community, and so was there any experiences of uh, growing up as part of that community? Not really, because I I wasn't um, you know I would say I wasn't a gay kid in a way you know I I didn't know myself as uh, gay or queer um, uh, you know my sexual well orientation was a mystery to me in a certain way like you know our sexuality is a mystery to all of us as kids um, and in the context in which I grew up. Um, being gay wasn't really a social option. Hmm. Um, it wasn't uh, available in, let's say, the 1980s uh, uh, or, or early 90s, really, as a kind of viable possibility. I mean, of course, I had some awareness that that gay people existed, but uh, it wasn't something real. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I didn't grow up hmm. with as a gay kid it was it was not real so when did it become real um i mean in high school so i went to an all boys uh jesuit uh high school college prep you know um you know and there's of course um sexual energy you get a bunch of boys together there's there's always you know sexual energy uh, which felt like you know again uh, okay we're teenagers they're adolescents this is part of just being in puberty whatever um but by the end of high school i guess i recognized okay i have a little bit more interest in other boys than they do you know in terms of uh, each other's bodies or that 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 erotic energy that was there and i thought okay when i go off to college i will explore this um, and it's sort of a secret pledge to myself um, and so I did go off to college and I moved far away from home went to Boston um, to another Jesuit institution Boston College uh, and you know it, there also it was not a particularly you know sex positive place or gay positive place it, okay there were a couple of uh, let's say gay kids around but um it didn't also seem like a very viable social option to explore that and i didn't really know how to i was not an alternative 
uh, culture, you know, person in any way. Moreover, um, I fell in love with uh, a girl, you know, like first year um, there who started as a close friend and then, um, you know, became my girlfriend. And so... How old were you uh, at that time? 19. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so our relationship was really the, uh, the story of my, you know, sort of romantic life throughout uh, uh, the next seven years uh, to a very large extent. Uh, you know, this pledge you did to yourself, then you kept that to yourself or you shared with your family or somebody else? Or... No, I didn't share it with, with others. Um, it was definitely my, my own, you know, intention. Just like I had an intention to sort of do more music and singing in, in, in college, which I did. Um, but yeah, exploring um, my sort of gay side, uh, I, you know, at the end of my third year of university, I, I had a, a friend, a guy um, who, yeah, I mean, we, we started a, a physical relationship and that was really the first um, I mean, for like a few weeks as he was graduating, uh, uh, and it was like a, you know, uh, we didn't fall in love or something, but it was sort of a, um, yeah, just a, a physical exploration, um, and enjoyment. Um, so, you know, it wasn't like I didn't, didn't do anything, but it, again, it was just kind of against the grain in the, uh, kind of Catholic, um, you know, somewhat affluent setting that I was living in. Um, even if Boston College was much more diverse than my my life in Omaha. Hmm. And then as I graduated from college, I, I made another huge jump, this one maybe even bigger, by moving to Cairo, Egypt. And why Cairo? Well, I had gotten interested in the Arab world um, in a, in a number of ways. One, because of uh, being Sicilian, I had a, a certain connection uh, through my own sense of personal history to the Mediterranean, um, which in studying Roman literature and Latin language, I, I, I sort of had explored throughout high school and college. Um, and as a French major, uh, you know, had also come to, and a German minor, I had come to study more of like the European side of uh, the Mediterranean. I got curious about the the Arab side of the Mediterranean and and like how it, I knew that it used to be a cultural unit and I got I was wondering what happened that that got cut in half in a sense you know Ronald Reagan in the 80s talked about an iron curtain being drawn across Europe and separating the Soviet uh, Union from and its sphere of influence from the rest well, that, that same phrase, Iron Curtain, it seems like, well, what's the Iron Curtain across the Mediterranean? Um, you know, with Perestroika and the end of the Cold War, this kind of focus on the Soviets was sort of over as our enemies, you know, as in America. And as a Christian, this, this mandate of loving your enemies, this kind of very radical, uh, counterintuitive uh, idea uh, in the Gospels, uh, was one that um, challenged me and inspired me, I would say. And so I was asking myself as I was kind of in the second half of my undergraduate uh, studies, like, who's my enemy? 
that I may love them. And the answer that my society seemed to be giving was, your enemy is the Arab Muslim. Mm. And so I thought, okay, I'll go love those people mm. and see what happens. Um, I had yeah, also explored uh, uh, Arab literature written in the French language. So from Morocco and Tunisia, Algeria, uh, as part of my French language and literature studies. And boy, this had fascinated me. Um, uh, I also applied to her Fulbright to go to Morocco. I didn't get it in the end. So I had all this kind of interest in that part of the world. And then this opportunity came up uh, to, to work in a, a Jesuit high school in Cairo, and, you know, which is the largest city in the Arab world, the largest city in, in Africa. Um, yeah, and I thought, okay. This, and it, it was this French immersion school, so it just seemed to fit uh, building on what I had done in, in, in college and high school and moving into something very new in this developing uh, country. Mm, and very deep philosophical question in your early 20s. <laughs> Who's your enemy? Yes. Did you find the answer? <laughs> well, like <laughs> I said, I, I, took, I took as the answer not, it wasn't my uh, answer it was the societal answer of what my uh, my american uh, culture was telling me okay these are your enemies um the sort of demonization of arab muslims was very apparent and uh acceptable even if demonization of so many other groups had become unacceptable although still prevalent of course here uh, demonization of 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 black people of jews of um, of course, Soviets, um, uh, none of that was acceptable anymore, even if it was, of course, still happening. But demonization of Arabs, especially the Muslim Arabs, everyone did it. It was totally fine. Of course, these are terrorists. Of course, these are crazy people. Uh, of course, these are bad people. This was the sort of um, message uh, that I, I got from my ambient uh, society. So. It wasn't that I, I said, oh, of course there really are. I didn't believe any of it, but um, I, I acted as if, you know, and I acted, I mean, enemy as a category that's defined not by me, but by someone else or by my society. And that's where I went. So it wasn't to go find, are they really my enemies? No, it was, it was to go love them. That was my mission. And did you find love there? <laughs> I, I created love. I experienced love. I received love. Sure, that, that happens with every human encounter if, if we're open to it. Yeah, tell me more about that. What love happened there? Well, first of all, I was uh, a high school teacher. I was, you know, I was twenty-two and very soon twenty-three years old, and my students were primarily fifteen-year-olds or fourteen-year-olds. And loving them was my, you know, sort of main mission. And, 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 kind of, and so I was like a big brother, not being that much older than them, really. And yet, you know, uh, uh, Mr. Uh, Longo, you know, in, in, the, in the classroom. And, yeah, I mean, trying to love them through their uh, development intellectually and academically and as... As, as human beings who can explore the world through reading and, and learning a, a, a foreign language, the English language. Um, that was very exciting uh, for, for me to mentor them and, and 
um, see their potential and try to cultivate it. Um, you know, it wasn't a, a Jesuit high school like the one I had gone to, and it was rather harsh. It was um, uh, uh, somewhat violent at times. It, you know, physical punishment was sometimes used on the boys. Mm. Um, and so my um, caring for them and being very explicit about caring for them as human beings and as, uh, you know, younger brothers even, uh, was was different, very different culturally to that institution. And uh, um, and so it also undermined some of my authority because, you know, this sort of strongman model was a little bit more the norm there. And I didn't fit into that. Mm-hmm. Nor was I a woman, which, you know, some of the women who were teachers there, of course, had their own way uh, as kind of motherly figures in many cases with the boys. But uh, yeah, I think being a high school teacher, especially the first year or two, is an extraordinary challenge for any adult at whatever age, but it certainly was a, a, a big challenge to me. And did you find more curiosity about your sexual orientation there? Yeah, I mean, one of the metaphors for Cairo that I came across in those days was that it is like a big pressure cooker, you know, very hot, very packed with with people um and a lot of uh political pressure and oppression a lot of economic uh, deprivation and lack of opportunity so the the sort of sexual tension of egyptian society permeated the whole Hmm. um you know especially let's say young men uh, and women my age I mean, they couldn't date for the most part. It wasn't, it, it wasn't, a, a, it's not a social kind of, uh, socially accepted, unless you're engaged to even be with a, another person of the opposite sex and kind of a romantic sort of framework. And so the sexual, um, yeah, tension of the whole city was just extraordinary. Um, and I mean, from my own exploration or whatever, I mean, what to say, first of all, it's a homosocial society. You know, men hang out with men, women hang out with women. Um, in the public sphere that, you know, the, the sort of the, the, the cafe, the ahwa, uh, is sort of the place where, where men of, of, you know, from young men to old men are, are sort of playing backgammon, drinking tea, smoking shisha or nargula. Um, and... Yeah, it was, that's, the, that's, you know, the, in many ways, the center of social life. And so my, my life was very, very male, um, you know, had, had a few uh, women who were uh, friends, uh, especially from the, the Catholic community, the sort of young, young adult Catholic community. But for the most part, it was, uh, it was a very, um, yeah, homosocial experience for me. And so and then all these men who have no sexual outlets, you know, just made this pressure. Uh, you know, most of them, of course, were not, let's say, gay. And, and I, you know, was n- not sure, of course, where, where I fit in into all of that either. But there's just a, a tremendous amount of sexual yearning uh, among everybody. And I, I was one of them. Hmm. It was a difficult time and a rich time and a beautiful time of, of extraordinary uh, uh, discovery, um, 
um, you know, having my mind blown a, min a million times and then mm -hmm. trying to put back together pieces of like, well, how do I understand, I mean, gender, uh, sexuality, culture, religion, um, you know, profession, um, adulthood, adolescence, um, the, the world order, geopolitics, um, relationship to other communities. Of course, Israel loomed large, uh, being a, a, the northern neighbor of Egypt. And, you know, as an American, uh, I often received from Egyptians all kinds of commentary and, and accusations and flack uh, for, you know, my country's policies uh, in, towards Palestine, Israel, Egypt, about which I didn't know that much. So there were so many things that, that sort of exploded my worldview and my sense of identity and um, my understandings of the world. Mm. Um, it, it took quite some time in the years after this two-year experience to integrate all mm. of that and, and, and really digest it, make sense of it, um, feel my way through it. I mean, that's why I actually, I went back to Boston College at a master's degree in comparative theology and focused on religion and politics in the contemporary Middle East. So I was reading my way through these many, many lived experiences. Uh, yeah, I was an intellectual. I, I identified as an intellectual from, you know, uh, my, my early 20s. And, and so it was primarily through my head through my reading through my thinking and writing that i uh, explicitly sort of processed all of this you know I, I like this metaphor of this explosion of head and then you're just putting it back all together and integrating so what experiences helped you integrate that well when i came back to U the U.S. and to Boston College for that graduate program in theology. Um, at first, I just went into academic overdrive, and and I was you know like taking five graduate courses a semester and auditing five others, so like ten courses a semester, which is a, you know kind of crazy as I look at it now. But I was um, avoiding also many things. I had um, I had had a I wouldn't have called him boyfriend at the time, but I had a romantic relationship uh, with uh, another American, a U.S. Marine that I met at my my parish church in Cairo, and and this relationship uh, uh, challenged my sense of self in in many ways, and we broke up when I, I mean, again, we didn't probably use even that language of breaking up, but we, whatever, he stayed there, and I came back to the U.S. We didn't have you know, WhatsApp to be able to talk or Zoom to be able to, you know, see each other. I mean, it was a different time. This is in 99. Um, and so I avoided, I think, reflecting on that in many ways. I came back, I lived with two of my good friends from college. Um, and I did at this time now share about maybe uh, like, okay, I guess I'm bisexual, something like that. I would have said to some, you know, my, my close friends but I didn't really do anything else. And I just was studying and reading and trying to make sense of all that I had 
experienced in Cairo. After about a year of that sort of overdrive, intellectual overdrive, I started to become depressed, hmm. very depressed. And um, I eventually, it was like the alarm bells were going off in my internal system that it's like, hey, something needs attention. And it wasn't just my sexual orientation. There are all kinds of other aspects of my identity that had been, like I said, blown apart. I mean, I use the, the you know, there's a, we have this nursery rhyme about Humpty Dumpty, mm -hmm. uh, who sort of fell off a wall and, and like all the, all the pieces of him, you know, needed to be put back together again. That's how I felt. And um, my depression, you know, you ask about what experiences helped me integrate. Well, I, I look at the depression actually as a gift now, although it was extremely painful. It was, a, it was suffering like I, I have hardly ever experienced in my life. Uh, this is now more than 20 years ago. Um, it, it caused me to slow down. I had started even a second master's degree, one in philosophy. Uh, so I was, I'd finished some of the requirements for the first degree. So quickly I was started to the second, I was just like, <laughs> and it's the depression sort of caused me to slow down. Uh, eventually uh, I was recommended by a mentor to go to a, a, a psychologist and I began psychotherapy, um, which then, you know, had me move back to my hometown, to Omaha. I, and, you know, first it was kind of a, a, a first aid or sort of emergency, you know, uh, therapy to really just begin making sense of all of this. And then eventually I, I was able to, you know, do other things in life. I found my first professional job and, you know, sort of integrated into adult life in that way. But, uh, the psychotherapy was more than anything the the what helped me let's say integrate all of those experiences in in um, although yeah i don't want to discount that what i did academically was also very important but yeah, i yeah. thought that was the only thing and it certainly wasn't and, and so if you look back you know during that time you know going deeper into yourself with the support of depression and psychotherapy what did you come out with? So what did I come out with? Well, from those first several years of therapy is um, healing uh, some of those wounds, gathering understanding about my mother and my father as, as you know, people in their own journey and with their own histories and challenges and shortcomings and struggles. Um, and in those years, also back in Omaha, uh, I was where I started, you know, going to gay bars and dating uh, other men, really for the first time in the most kind of uh, regular way, and finding my place in um, some kind of gay society. Although back in Cairo, I had definitely found my way to a certain kind of gay society as well, although sometimes unwittingly. Um, there's a whole group of, of expat, uh, mostly American men who were, you know, 20, 30 years older than me, who were all gay. And I didn't realize it at first, but I was kind of part of their social milieu. And I thought they were just sort of mentoring. And, 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 and no one was ever, um, I would say, creepy or anything with me. But um, probably they knew me in, in terms of my sexuality before I did in certain ways. 
and and you know this healing which happened in you did it impact or how did it impact your coming out process to yourself and to the society and to your family and your future choice of your career well yeah i mean it's all of a piece um yeah i mean these were the years of coming out to myself um in a more uh accepting self-accepting way and even understanding what does it mean to you know sort of okay i'm not i'm not straight you know um there's more to me than that than that um and yet i'm also uh not just gay and like my loving experiences with with women were not a faking or something or or not themselves you know a farce um so that probably is what a little bit of what complicated some of my my coming out process coming out as what you know I, and um i mean even bisexual is not exactly uh a social option in america i mean in the same way that being a, a, a gay man or a lesbian is a social option today and 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 at the time we're talking which is now around the year 2000 2002 um so you know coming out as bi was sort of a the, the you know one of the kind of phrases that people would sort of hurl at me gay men mm-hmm. would say bi now gay later <laughs> <laughs> you know and it's sort of like okay nice story you're by uh that's just a transitional you know kind of illusion that you're deceiving yourself with because it's a little bit easier mm-hmm. um and you'll 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 come around you'll get it eventually um which i didn't like to hear then and i i i of course don't don't like it now either um um but yeah i mean putting all these pieces together i guess it 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 was the work of these years into sort of my mid my mid 20s so having some uh provisionally integrated adult self who was bicultural um you know more you know at least try you know, i mean i spoke four languages at this time i i also read latin and, and ancient greek quite well also well, actually i had studied hebrew as well so there there were already many languages in my in my um repertoire um and then having this sexual orientation that also bridged the straight and gay worlds um so it was a complex um mosaic uh this self that i put together by the time i was in my you know sort of late uh well between mid and late 20s the society wants to put people in boxes mm. how about life is not about boxes personality is not about boxes it's fluid it's flexible it's designed it's changing it's pieces it's great it's coming together yes in your life what i've heard so far whether it's about your sexuality or it's about different cultures or different languages it's a huge exploration of just putting these pieces of mosaic together yes yeah i mean my time in egypt stretched me and it it didn't quite, it didn't break me 
but it stressed me. Uh, and I became Egyptian in many ways. You know, I, I, I often say I became part of Egypt and Egypt became part of me. Mm. And then you become a Muslim Christian dialogue facilitator and a scholar in that area. Can, do you want to share something about that? Why you did that? I moved to Seattle, uh, this beautiful, beautiful emerald city, uh, green and, and alternative uh, from, you know, it's like a perfect place to drop out of, of, of corporate America. And by this time I was a marketing manager, I was a business development manager. Um, and I thought, okay, I want to do some further studies. I'm not sure what in. I want to like really take note of what is my place in the world. So, so 9-11 had happened, of course, in 2001. Um, this is now a couple of years after that. And I thought, who, who am I in this world? What does the world need of me? Where is my place? Taking into account all that I am and all that's happened, you know, this thing about the Arab Muslim as, as our enemy that I had seen in, in the late 90s became one of the most pressing issues in America and in the world to some extent. Um, it was my, my somewhat, you know, obscure interests in, 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 in as an American Catholic to, to learn Arabic and to spend time living in the Arab world. And later I, I worked in, in irrigation technology going to Saudi Arabia and Dubai mm -hmm. on a sort of monthly basis for a couple of years. Um, uh, so my, my expansion uh, or my experience of the Arab world expanded pretty soon discerned that I wanted to do um, a, a doctorate in Arabic and Islamic studies. Um, I had all these interests in language and literature and culture and history and religion and philosophy. And, and the way that we study Islam in the West is very interdisciplinary. And so I could pursue all of these different interests in the, in the, under the aegis of a, of a doctorate in Arabic and Islamic studies, the sort of... And you did it at Harvard. And I did it at Harvard. I mean, I didn't know where was good at it at first, but uh, I figured out that that was one of the places that was good. And, and my purpose was to, to be a bridge. I mean, this had already become, I had recognized that I, I was a bridge in many ways already between Egypt and the U.S., Christians and Muslims, gays and straights, uh, professionals and academics. Um, you know, my mom and my dad. Mm. Uh, so many, I, I was a bridge and, and, and so I saw that as part of my vocation in the world, um, my mission, my purpose, a way to become myself more fully in, and do so in a way that served uh, some pressing needs. How are you serving this purpose of being a bridge today? Yeah, thank you for that. I, I do um, still um, use this metaphor. I actually was talking about it with someone just yesterday. Um, you know, today I, I do leadership development and executive coaching, especially for um, highly accomplished LGBTQ men. And, um, you know, help my clients grow as human beings and, and, and discover the different parts of themselves. And, and become themselves, whatever that is, whoever they are. Um, so 
the bridging that I do today is to some extent seeing the different parts of my clients, their shadow side, uh, as well as the, the light side of them, the, um, the little boy and the, the grown-up man in them, um, all of these different various parts of their mosaics, which are quite different, of course, from mine. And um, letting my mosaic, letting my many parts, uh, which are in some way uh, integrated or in some kind of system, be present to their mosaic and um, ask them questions or inquire with them and exploring with them on what it might look like to put their pieces together in a, in a maybe potentially more coherent or uh, integrated way. Um, so this is, this is one part of my bridging uh, mm. in my work now. Very beautiful, Dominic, that the bridge, somehow this function, you don't consider in the society and you made that as a purpose of your life mm. and still trying to put things together as you evolve yourself along with others. My last question to you is, from here to where do you see? Um, yeah, to some degree, that's a mystery that I'm letting unfold and unroll. Um, you know, this, this verb uh, unfurl has been one I, I have reflected on lately of sort of what's happening with me and in my life. Um, there's something grand and, and um, energetic about like unfurling a banner or a flag or something. And at times that, uh, that process is happening uh, for me and with me and in me. Um, and I don't know, you know, what's on the other side of that uh, unfurling or it's, if, if, if it's like a, a, a patch you know, yesterday I went to the Metropolitan Museum of Art to, here in New York and uh, I saw this beautiful quilt that the, you know, in the 19th century had been collected as the Met got more serious about American art. Uh, well, I, probably it was early 20th century that it was collected. Like each patch is a little bit different and there's a structural resonance among the patches that make up the quilt, but they're also different and unique even. So as I see the different structures of myself unfurling, well, yeah, it's going to be me, but um, there's also mystery. Hmm. So thank you very much, Dominic, for unfurling the mosaic of your past with us. And I'm really looking forward and I'm very happy to be part of this journey as a friend with you. Thank you. Thank you, Deepak. Really a pleasure to have this conversation. Jimmy Carter said, we become not a melting pot, but a beautiful mosaic. Different people, different beliefs, different yearnings, different hopes and different dreams. When society teaches us about enemy, we go and love them. When society gives us boxes to define ourselves, we create new patches. The story of Dominic is an inspirational reminder to celebrate our uniqueness and to find beauty in that of others. In fact, there are no others, just a big, beautiful, unfurling mosaic. <laughs>